Welcome to the Universal Sisterhood Podcast. We're hoping to create a place where women can delve deeper, lift their gaze higher, live freer, laugh louder, smile brighter, and be the authentic woman she was designed to be. Every human heart is created to be known, loved, and understood. So this is the place where women can share their stories. Welcome to episode 59. In today's episode, you get to meet Noelle Mering. She is the author of Awake Not Woke, a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. Noelle humbly breaks down what woke is. She unmasks this ideology by examining its history, major players, premises and tactics, showing us, me in particular, that wokeness at its core is an ideology of rupture. Indeed, it's an ideology with fundamentalist and even cult-like characteristics that is on a collision course with Christianity. Noelle breaks it down very easily for us to see it, be aware of it, and not to be fooled by it and how to overcome it. This is a spiritual battle and it's not by accident. The architects of revolution have long known that the transformation of the West had to come by destabilizing its social structure, its family structure and its religious structure. They have had no trouble in doing this Um, and it is now up to us to bring about restoration. Um, But that restoration begins by identifying and understanding the principles of the woke movement. While this revolution is a counterfeit religion resulting in alienation and division, by us becoming aware of it, by uh, first and foremost restoring ourselves, restoring our families, restoring our hearts, restoring our faith, restoring humanity, we can make a change for the better. We can bring about a harmonious restoration of the whole of society. Um, I wanted to leave you with this quote from Ephesians. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Ephesians 5.14 Noel so beautifully helps us begin that journey of restoration. Please sit down. Or walk, however, or drive your car, however you listen to podcasts. And listen to Awake, Not Woke with Noelle Merring. I'd love to welcome to the podcast, Noelle Merring. Um, Before we dive into the topic of uh, the book that you have just written, I would love for you to explain a little bit about who you are and what your life looks like right now. Sure. It's great to be here. My name's Noelle Maring, as you said. I'm a wife and mother of six children, similar to you. I live in Southern California. I've uh, I've been a writer and an author of the two Theology of Home series, co-authored those, and uh, been doing articles in various publications for uh, about maybe four or five years. And this is my first solo book. I'm also a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And so I'm just balancing the mom and the writer stuff and 
I'm making it <laughs> trying to make it work as imperfectly as I can. <laughs> Often do you work mainly from home? I do. Yeah. Yeah. But oh. there's a degree of travel that comes with authorship. So it slowed down a lot, obviously, during COVID, but it's picking back up again. Yeah. Wow. You are very busy, but we are grateful for your busyness because you have written the book Awake Not Woke. And I know myself, I hear that word a lot, um, but I don't fully understand what it means. So I would love for you to break down, start from the beginning, what actually is being woke and whether it's good for us and um, how do we live in a society that is woke being Catholic women. Um, so let's start with the <laughs> from the top. What is being woke? That's, that sounds great. Uh, it's a big question, but I'll try to make it as simple as possible. So the, the the simplest definition, I think, of being woke means to be alert and aware and scanning your environment for the pervasive layers of oppression throughout society. Um, and those are commonly understood to be around along the lines of identity groups, the hot button identity group issues such as race, gender, sexuality. Um, it has historical genealogy that I go into in so, to some degree in my book, but it stems from um, a version of Marxism as well as neo-Freudianism and postmodernism. Um, so there's a lot happening there, and I, I to to really flesh it out in the book, I distill it down to I treat it as a, basically as a new religion. So I go through the origins, and then the dogmas, then the modes of indoctrination, and then the path of restoration. So the, to briefly go through just the three main dogmas, I think that will help uh, your listeners maybe to be able to understand it and also identify it. The first, they're all three is uh, just each each of the three is a distortion of two things. Um, one of, of a pair of things. So the first one is it's an elevation of group identity to the detriment of the person. So group versus person. Second is the elevation of our will, our desire over, over our reason or our nature. And third, it's an emphasis on human power over true authority. Um, and so, so we can talk about those to whatever degree you like, but the, the thing that was fascinating to me in coming in realizing that distillation was that the three things that were reduced in those, in those three categories are our reason, the human person and authority. And the characteristics of the logos are the mind, the reason of God and the person of Jesus Christ, who is the author and authority of all. And it really helped me to understand how the logos really is the ultimate target of this movement. And even if you read some of the postmodernists, I think it was Derrida who said that, that you know he was he wanted it to re, uh, revolt against a logocentric society, um, understanding that that was fundamentally going to be the best avenue to um, overturning that society. So, um, so there's a lot there, and we can go into any of that if if, if that seems like it needs fleshing out or. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it seems extremely, um, uh, it's on purpose. What's it's, it's very like intentional, their, their ability or their, their desire to destroy society from those three pillars. Sure. I mean, I think it both is and, and it isn't. So if you read the writing, they're quite explicit, uh, abolish the family, uh, uh, you know, that uh, Christianity was the actual, the biggest obstacle to revolution is what Marx would say, it's the family and Christianity. Those were the two main biggest obstacles. 
And that um, that really has carried through, that, that's been a thread throughout the movement. Uh, but I say it also isn't because there's, you know, if you, your, your neighbor down the street who happens to be woke probably isn't walking around saying, like, let's destroy the family or let's, let's ruin mm -hmm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think it is so powerful is because there are true ideologues who are, you know, who have been doing the writing and you read their literature and you see how radical this is. But they really rely on goodwill people who to, by preying on their emotions and making them not understand the full radical implications of what they're being indoctrinated into. Um, and so it's very dissembling in that way. It's both right out there in front of all of our eyes if we're willing to read what they write. And it, but it's also very hidden and it's very um, kind of, they, it's, they operate a lot on confusion. So they'll say explicitly that it means this. And then if in a conversation, if you come, you, you say that, then they'll say, well, you're, no, they'll retreat back to some common sort of principle, like, oh, no, we're just trying to be against racism, right, for example, mm. or we just want to not make people feel bullied or something. Um, mm. Well, of course, these are good principles, right? We, every normal goodwill person is against those things, they're, they're bad things. Um, but that's a way to retreat, to, to obfuscate what the actual what the the actual poison that is being injected into this through this ideology um and i think that the identifying that is really the key to combating it the first key because um because we have to see things clearly with clarity and i think in your when you're wrapped up in something and you don't see it for what it is then it's really easy to be pulled along with it because it does really operate parasitically on Christian impulses and our desire to be kind, compassionate people. Yeah, well, I, I was sitting at the beach over summer and um, I was, when you just said it's it's all around us and it's, I was sitting there and, and we have nippers. I don't know whether you have nippers in the States. Nippers are like um, junior lifesavers. So uh -huh. it's it's kind of like a, a religion every Sunday they all go down to the beach it's a sporting activity it's a it's a community it's a group thing and they learn to um rescue they learn to surf uh not surf but um surf ski they learn to swim in the ocean and to save people and resuscitation and it's good it's all very good helpful useful um active lifestyle kind of um things but the children all wear a nippers uh, vest over their cozies, over their bathers, whatever you call them over there. We call them cozies. <laughs> um, and they're hot pink. And I, this, there was this sign on them that drew my attention and I looked at it. It's the, it's the, it's the triangles. Anyway, written so blatantly across the back of every single one of these children, there would have been at least 60 kids, was Freemasonry um, and it had the suburb, the, the, the location of where I was. Um, wow. Yeah. And they were sponsoring, they sponsored the nippers. They sponsored this life be in it, you know, healthy lifestyle, go get them, we're a community where, where we promote you know, safety and exercise and health and well-being, and we're supporting you. And I just thought, does anybody else see this? Like this is blatantly obvious, and they're all there, and they all—they they probably don't know what it means. They don't know what it is, but they relate it to a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, 
Oh my goodness. If you have eyes to see, <laughs> it is so ob obvious, but so sinister. Yeah. Um, no, anyway, I, I, I brought that up with a friend of mine and she was talking to her father about it, who's a very staunch um, Catholic. And he said, oh, it's an old thing now. They're, they're nothing to worry about. Is he right in saying that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, for the free Freemasonry is not something that is at all in my area of expertise, but <laughs> I would think I, it's I certainly something to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of there was just a picture of um, someone, I guess the Fruity Pebbles, that's children's cereal. Now they have a play, bot place on the box where children can, or they prompt children to list their pronouns. Uh, oh, and wow. so, it, yes, I, I do think that there is a real effort and energy put on getting kids to get on board with this at a younger and younger age. Um, I think that that's part of, A, it's, you know, it, it, it's if, if the earlier you get them, then the, you know, the better off you are as far as the metric of the ideology goes. Um, but there's another way in which uh, part one of the tenets of woke ideology is that innocence is dominance. Um, and I read about this this in the book, and it's kind of actually a really involved and interesting conversation. But um, but the, but the idea of innocence is something that uh, well, let me explain it this way. I think the woke movement ultimately fundamentally is human beings who want to be God. They want to they want to usurp God and they deify deify themselves. That's the that's the source of the ideology. So if you are you know you want you want to reject all authority. Um, you want to reject even the reality of your bodily nature, um, mm -hmm. you know, that your will can basically be deified. You know, what I, that the, that's what I think we see in the transgender movement is that they're saying what I desire can trump even, even the, the body that I inhabit, um, that somehow I can, um, tr uh, transcend, you know, the, this, this, this integral part of me. Um, and that strikes me as a really, uh, uh obviously, uh, an effort that is absurd, but but it but it also is really a a, a self deification, um, and you know the 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 it's point. It's the ultimate control, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's a it's a refusal to really reverence anything, even reality. That even reality cannot have authority over me. So not it's not just hierarchical structures. It's actually just even fundamental human nature. And that you see in most any totalitarian regime throughout history, they tr they they try to say that you can transit, you can transform your the, the there is no stable human nature, um, that we can create a new Maoist man or you know, um, this is a this is a, a basic tactic of totalitarian regimes. And so, um, and so anyway, to get back to the innocence is dominant. So one of the mm. things that if there is so with the second the second dogma of the woke movement which is will over reason and nature that basically means that there is no moral law because if your your body does not mean anything there's no intelligible moral law there's no intelligible natural law um our bodies have to be meaningless if they can be whatever we say they are right and that's i think at the core of the transgender movement so if there is no moral law then the the child is really a symbol of innocence that points to something higher and points to something good. Um, it's a, the, the innocence of a child is a signpost to goodness, which also an, inno an innocence, which ultimately means it's, the child is a signpost to Christ Himself. Um, and so that is a condemning of 
of the, the woke ideology because it's immediately saying that uh, a, a signpost of innocence, a signpost towards Christ is immediately saying there actually is a law. There is a good, there is an objective good, there is real evil, you know, these things. And so I think that that's why children in particular, one of the reasons why they're targeted is because they are such an icon of goodness in this world. I got too dark too fast. <laughs> no, well, that is so interesting. Um, I think fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And that, because you see the child younger and young, you see like um, cross-dressers reading children books at the library. Right. Like, <laughs> Right. The, the only think, reason you do that was would be to confuse, deliberately confuse yeah. a child. Well, the ostensible, the reason that they give is that it's an anti-bullying thing, right? They, they say, if we can expose kids to these other alternative lifestyles at a young age, then they'll be far less likely to, they say they, they, two purposes. One, they'll be less likely to bully people who are different. Two, they say they'll be, the child who might be uh, open to this sort of life will be uh, able to be introduced to it. and yeah yeah, yeah it, it it might be it the child who is disposed towards being other or you know transgender or whatever this get, allows them a, a safe space you know they would they would say to explore that and to start introducing that possibility into their minds so those are the ostensible reasons but i i do think that but the the, the actual reason is that they they're um just what, what i was saying before that there anything normative so any the reality that the fact that children might think it's silly or weird or creepy you know to have a man you know teach them how to twerk and wear makeup and high heels that instinct to be uncomfortable with that is a sign of their of the dominance of the norms of society it represents some some the way that there is a way that things ought to be or a normal way to live and that sort of any sense of and that there's a norm has to be dismantled and disrupted. And so the sooner you get those kids to stop seeing that as weird, then the sooner you start getting them to see that there it's a it's a gateway into seeing that there is no actual meaning to their bodies, no norm, no normal um, way to be sexually, no normal way to be in, in marriage, that marriage itself is uh, not a preferred or stable institution. All these things flow from that. Um, uh, uh, but it's it's yeah I, I, it it it's it's a key um, tactic for them, and so I think that they're the the kids are really going to continue to be targeted the the longer that we let this go on. Wow, I've never actually ever thought of it like that. <laughs> That's incredible, um, because they are so innocent and they're so they are in tune with their conscience <laughs> because yeah. they you innately know right from wrong. Right. And certainly, you know, kids should be should and can be taught to not bully people and to be compassionate to people who have struggles and who are different. Those are good things. But that is there's far more happening here than 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 just that. You know, when when you have I mean, I watched a ton of the videos and it's it is really disturbing. I mean, they really are. It's it gets it becomes sexual and weird pretty quickly. And, you know, all these moms who are kind of walking their kids into this, you know, sort of situation and thinking they're so proud of how open minded they are. You know, it's the whole thing is just quite bizarre. And I think we're so steeped in all this ideology that it, it starts to feel normal. And we think, oh, this is a great way to be. This is an open, progressive way to be. You know, I look at how open-minded I am. I'm teaching my child to be, you know. And I think we cease to see, you know, how bizarre this all is. Yeah. Yeah. 
my sister works in a um a school it's it's a i won't i won't name the school but the school had they have very uh liberal policies and she's dealing a lot with um children that are um transitioning and but at, they're getting younger and younger and younger yeah. and the and one one group of uh, parents are quite happy for the child to transition and the other another set don't uh, are not sure and don't want it to be encouraged by the school but the school um override the parents decisions which yeah. is another bizarre thing yeah you're not allowed to question it you know that's the new no. thing and that's one of the reasons that you know i think what's going to happen is and other people speculate this before, it's not original to me, is that, you know, in a decade or something, it's already starting to happen. There's going to be a whole generation of, especially girls, I think, because girls, there's been such a social contagion of young girls tr- transitioning, um, where they're going to be suing, you know, suing their doctors, suing, what, what, where were the adults that were protecting me? I, I was 14 years old and you gave me a mastectomy and put me yeah. on altering hormones. This is insane. Just because I said so, oh, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to just yeah. do what the kid says and not explore the underlying issues and, and sadnesses and, you know, something that might be going on that this is sort of masking, you know, it's incredibly sad. 60 Minutes just did a, a feature on this. Amazingly, they featured uh, people who were, who were regretting, they detransitioned. It was remarkable. I wasn't expecting that out of 60 Minutes, but good for them. Um, but yeah. it was absolutely heartbreaking when you really hear what they've gone through, their bodies have gone through, what the surgeries, the the absolute mutilation that they went through, mm. you know, and it just it becomes really impressed upon the 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 observer how how cultish this is, you know, how yeah. truly cultish this is and fabricated, you know, that the, the, no, the Abigail Schreier is a great book about this, that there are almost no girls transitioning 10 years ago or 20 years ago or something. It just exploded. Yeah. It's a social mm-hmm. contagion, you know, masking other pathologies that, you know, that aren't being addressed. So, yeah, it's quite, quite sad and alarming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is so sad. Um, could you, what would be our, our, the antidote to this? How do we counter this wokeism, this new religion, Western religion? Yeah. Well, that's also a big question. I said the fourth, the last part of my book, I go through restorations. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the central things to understand is that this movement is built, is dehumanizing. It reduces human beings. It's it's, it's utterly dehumanizing. And it's also, um, it, it's also uh, uh, deforming. So um, in, the, in the first, I think, you know, one of the ways that we, it's a movement of rupture is, is what I want to say is that it's based on breaking things apart and mm. the faith is all, and the family uh, and the definition of human flourishing is all about building things up. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a force for positivity. So one of the things I say often is that, um, you know, one, this is a fundamental, and I think an easy way for people to see the difference as Catholics or Christians, we understand that what we are is, are the definition of the human person is something that is, you know, distinctive to our humanity. Like in Aristotle would say, you know, we're rational animals. Um, but it's a universal definition where we all share this same, you know, um, fundamental nature. And then the Christian understanding and definitions that we are fundamentally, you know, with our the- with theolo- theological reality, we are uh, children of invited into, into the family of God. Um, so we are defined by God himself. We're defined by love. 
for the woke, we are defined not by love of God, but by the hatred of society. So this implies two very distinct missions. So for the Christian, the, the, you know, the Catholic, we're called to know, love, and serve the Lord and spread his message, the evangelical call, you know, to spread the good news. For the woke, we are to spread the, the horrible news that you're actually, you're not loved, you're hated. <laughs> the whole Catholic message is you are, you are loved. You know, you're invited mm. into this beautiful familial intimacy with the creator of the universe. The woke message is you actually are hated by, you're either hated or you are, have hatred in your heart. You know, you're either oppressor or oppressed. It's this re- super oversimplified, very simplistic binary, but it's all bad news. And I think that, um, you know, the more we are very clear about how, d- how different those things are, the more we can feel confident about what love actually means. Um, and um, so, so some of the antidotes, I mean, there's, you know, I, I am a firm believer that regular confession is can <laughs> could change the world that the more yeah. we, the more frequently we frequently we frequent that confessional because in some ways confession is the the exact personal antidote to the woke movement the woke movement is all about scanning your environment for how people are are accusing people you know how are you mm. bad what is your sin confession each other against each other hitting each other against each other yeah and acu- accusation mm. um and seeing how you're hurt Confession, you know, that, and that there's a real human beings. We don't want to see our sins. We don't want to look at ourselves realistically. And that's why the church is so wise and works with our human nature in, 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 a, in a realistic way that it says, look, you're going to, you're going to go to confession and it's, it should be clear, concrete, complete, concise. All these things that keep us from deflecting, keep us from blaming, keep us from excusing, keeping, keep us from trying not to see it. And, um, and so that, and so that if where, where one move, the woke movement really is constantly encouraging you to look outside of yourself to find blame confession and the church really encourages you to look inside and what that does is it forces you into a place of humility and it makes you realize your need and you don't need you don't uh devote your life or you don't turn to a savior unless you see your need that you need him we don't need him then why do we turn to him so I, you know, I really see confession as being a sort of a linchpin. It, it's a hidden and maybe a less glamorous one as, as solutions go. There are obviously other solutions. I think we need to build new institutions. We need new schools. We need new, you know, the corporations are so messed up in all this that we need to give our money to other places, places that don't hate us, you know. Yeah. Um, and there are people doing that hard work, uh, that are building new things. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it's got to be, there's got to be a, a dual, there's got to be hidden the, that interior life too, that I think, you know, is fundamentally can change, change people and change society as well. Wow. Um, what about the family? What about as for a, a woman listening, what is one thing that she could do to start her own, um, her own way of counteracting this woke culture? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the, the family is so. What that's, I have a whole chapter in the restoration section about the the need to res, the restoration of the family and how that is the, such a path of hope. Um, and and I think that uh, you know, it's the simple, ordinary tasks of family life that really are you know the things, the stuff that a good family is made out of. Um, but we have to see it as you know, in our theology of home books, we really hone in on this that. The one of the avenues that we've been trying to sort of poison against the family is by seeing that our purpose is power rather than service. Um, and you know the 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 power of Christ is he he leads us an example. His leadership is a servant leadership. You know he he is 
constantly prompting us to see himself as a servant leader and therefore to see ourselves as having a similar purpose. Um, but the, the, the woke ideology and, you know, just uh, the feminist movement is part of this, obviously, but has really, I think, poisoned the well where it's constantly telling you that if, you know, your, your value is in how powerful you are. And so it really pits the husband and wife against each other. It pits women against her children. Um, and it's really, it's really ignores the reality of human life. Like human existence is we're interdependent. You know, we come to life as a baby who needs a mom, needs to be fed, needs a dad. The, uh, you know, when you're postpartum, any woman who's given birth knows that I actually really need my husband. <laughs> you know, it's extraordinarily harrowing to go ask that, that type, of, type of thing alone. Although women have had to do that for in tragic circumstances. Um, but human beings need each other. And that's actually not a sign of our weakness. It's a sign of a real beauty of communion that God has created us to have and that our very human nature bespeaks. Um, we end, you know, our lives needing people. You know, we're not, it's, most people don't grow old able to be completely autonomous individuals. So the reason, the, the way that we've arrived at this sort of sense that we should be, you know, powerful and not need other people, not vulnerable, it's really rather ridiculous if you think about it. Um, and the family is really such, such an antidote to all the the, 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 the three distortions too. You know, the, if the, the first distortion group over person, it leads to a, a deeply impersonal society. Um, in the book, I talk about how the first thing that the fam, one of the first acts of family life is when you enter a family, you're named, you know, you're named. And um, I think that bespeaks of the irreplaceability of the person, you know, that you, that every child is seen by his parents as being utterly irreplaceable, valuable, loved, um, significant, you know, um, not, not, not valued for any, any utility. You know, I don't, I don't get something from my baby. It's not because like, you're, you're cute or something, or you're going to do something for me. It's that, you know, that so, somehow I, I, I just, you know, God creates in our nature that we just are, you know, infused with this inc incredible love, just on a natural biological level from our, for our kin. Um, so, but, the, but the, the woke movement, you know, it, it, each person, rather than being, it's not the person who flourishes, it's the movement that must flourish. So, mm -hmm. for example, for example, um, I talk about how in, in with feminism, you know, they say, okay, we're for women. However, if you're a pro-life woman, guess what? They're not for you. And we saw that in the 2017 Women's March, where some pro-life feminists tried yeah. to mar officially march with the movement. And they said, no, you cannot. And, and um, you know, you realize at that point, it's not about women. It's about, you know, it's a pro-abortion march or it's a, it's a, a march for the for the forwarding the feminist ideology. Um, and so it, and it makes sense because they if they define the woman as being built around oppression, then someone who is not fighting that oppression on their terms is fundamentally rejecting some part of her womanhood. You know, that's what they would say. So the yeah. pro-life woman is it's not so it's not about um, having women flourish. It's about having ideology flourish. Uh, she doesn't have the correct consciousness. She's not fighting her oppression. So therefore, she's not worth um, encouraging or flourishing um, until she, get, she gets on board with the ideology. So it's essentially dehumanizing. It makes every person sort of a totem of the movement rather than a unique individual. And that's really contrasted with the, the life of the family and how each person is in the family. Yeah. Wow. So um, I was, I went to a... Um, there was a few, we had a, a bill that was passed last year about um, late-term abortions, actually two years ago. COVID year kind of slipped into oblivion <laughs> two years ago. Um, and um, it was, there were so many people there marching for life, 
for the woman and we were totally dismissed that we were uh, we didn't understand you know how, how can you you know you've you're really off the mark this is not for women women um th there were a lot of angry angry pro-choice women there who were just fighting us and i mean they're there for a a a fight really just to have their their voice heard and to um kind of not um they don't have the woman's best interest at heart let's put it that way uh, and it was very very obvious to us that they they just wanted to make um they just wanted to make us look silly <laughs> basically yeah and well there's some you know that the sadness underneath that is how wounded there how much there's probably a lot of wounds there you know a lot of you know a lot of the most ardent uh pro-choice women oftentimes have had abortions themselves and so there's a there's a, sh a guilt and a shame that they are trying to stomp down in their own psyche and soul but it's you know until you really are repent of it there's it's really hard to not have that really just be um we're working at you, you know, throughout your life. And it, I think it, unless you, unless you see it in that light, name it and identify it and, and, you know, get forgiveness for that, then it's going to be something that you're mad about because you don't want to see other people. A pro-life woman is basically a symbol to her of her own guilt, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she, she, you get, in, she gets enraged, you know, anger is, it, it makes sense, psychological sense. Why it's such an angry movement? Because it's a deeply wounded movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but also, if we didn't agree with them, we didn't actually have a voice. We shouldn't be allowed a voice. Like it was right. very obvious that be because we didn't agree with them, we were we were shut down or we were silly. Like we couldn't, we weren't entitled to our opinion. And it's like it's it's one rule for them and and, and another for us. Whereas, That's totally, yeah, diabolical. Like. Why can't we speak? You know, why can't we yeah. have a voice? Yeah, and that's by design, actually. There was a really important essay written in the 1965 called Repressive Tolerance by Herbert Marcuse. I talked about in the book. He was a really strong influence um, in the in the radicalization of the 60s culture. And basically his point was just the one you're making, that there's, there's no, it, it's not about dialogue, it's about suppression of dissent. Um, that, you know, if it, and I think that we, we get confused by this because, you know, you're, I think most people have an instinct about that are, that we should be critical thinkers. We should be open to objections and we should be able to respond. And that's, that's the right methodology if your goal is truth. However, their goal is not truth. Crit the goal of critical theory is all about power. This is what they say. And so if your goal is power, not the truth, then there's no point in entertaining objections. You need to silence objections, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense according to their own inner logic. But yeah, I think that a lot of confusion happens in those um, because I, I think we oftentimes don't realize they don't want to dialogue with us. They want to dominate us. You know, that's what the ideology demands. Mm -hmm. And that's very much what I felt. There was there was to be no dialogue. We were to be shut down um, and, and squashed. Yeah. And, it you know, they, they proclaimed tolerance, but they were not tolerant of, of our... Um, opinion or the, or the truth. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about the woke movement before I quickly jump over to theology of home? Um, 
I think I would just say I've been doing more, uh, I've been writing some articles about um, how this is in some, some parents at a Catholic prep school actually outside of Chicago reached out to me uh, and, and j just were eager to have some, they're fighting this in their own school, a school that they deeply love, they're deeply loyal to it. But, you know, the these Catholic teachers are starting to include their gender pronouns and their, you know, Zoom calls. And they bring they're bringing in um, critical theorists to, you know, to sort of indoctrinate the kids. And I watch the videos and they're really uh, kind of chilling in the way that they are so clearly kind of seeding all this poison into the school. Um, so I guess I would just say that it, it's. It's, it seems to me more and more apparent that we can't be complacent, that we have to be able to see what, what are, what's my, what are my kids learning? What's happening in my schools? You know, what, you know, this is, I don't think it's going away tomorrow by any means. And uh, the more we are clear about what's happening and, and willing to be happy warriors, but be warriors, you know, courageous with courage. And, it, you know, it's far easier to, to combat it if there's many people aware and fighting it than if it's just one person who's going to get canceled here and there. And then, you know, they can squash down these little things. But if people in general and en masse start really becoming awakened to what's happening, I think it'll be much easier to resist. Mm. And it's definitely inside our, the Catholic school system here in Australia. Um, which is sad, sad to say, but it's it's in the Catholic Church as well, not just outside. Um, and, and that makes it so much more confusing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is so much more confusing, but I think, yeah, yeah, I think that people, once you understand it, it, it becomes very easy to spot. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, it's it, because it really is in some ways a really simple um, uh, mode of thinking and ideology, but it... it they really dissemble through a lots of kind of complex language. And they part of the tactics is they really want you to not trust your own understanding of reality, your own understanding of, of language. So they have to reinterpret things for you and correct you. And it's it's quite militant. So it really is, it operates on intimidation and confusion. Um, mm -hmm. So the more we are able to spot it and understand it, I think the, the, the less power it'll have. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, before we get on to what brought you joy this week, I'd like to talk about your book, Theology of Home, that you co-wrote with Carrie Gress. Mm -hmm. And is it Megan Schreiber? Is that mm -hmm. how you pronounce her name? Yeah. Um, as soon as I saw this in my uh, Catholic bookshop, I had to pick it up and I just fell in love with it. It is it is not only be visually beautifully, beautifully presented with gorgeous pictures and pages, um, what you write about is so gorgeous, like blessing the home and how to make, you know, the, the table and service and our lady in the home. It is it is such a joy to read and I keep it on my coffee table because it it, it is a coffee table book, really, uh, with substance um, and I love it. What, what inspired you to write this? Thank you so much for your kind words. So we actually have two of them now. That's the first one. You have Theology Poem 1. I know. Yeah, that's that. The subtitle is The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. The second one is, oh, sorry. The first one is Finding the Eternal in the Everyday. The second one is The Spiritual yeah. Art of Homemaking. Um, so Carrie actually came up with the phrase, Theology of Home. She was on her treadmill listening to a song about a home, someone longing to go home. And she started thinking about how much we, in our imaginations and popular culture, you know, we have movies about homecoming, songs about I'll be home for Christmas. And um, we watch videos go viral of soldiers coming home and embracing their families. And and it just started making her think about, you know, and it, she came up with this phrase, theology of home. So we started talking about it and fleshing it out. And 
Uh, and just this idea that there is something that really is universal in that longing. And it's it's it, it can be nostalgic. It can be a longing for something that you had in your youth or something that you were deprived of, but you wish you'd had. But it's also sort of uh, a longing for the future, you know, that people talk about finding their forever home or, you know, they talk about it with real estate. But, you know, it really feels like a sleight of hand that God gives us this desire to be in this place where we can just be and abide and belong, be loved, you know, all these things nurtured, safe. And, you know, those are all the things that we long for that ultimately will only be fulfilled with our Lord in heaven. Um, but he gives us a foretaste of it here. And that's the home. And, um, you know, and I and I think as many of us know, and we often say in our interviews that home can either be a foretaste of heaven or it can be a foretaste of hell, you know, <laughs> when things are very going very badly. And I think with the quarantine, there's a lot of um, a lot of attention turned back to home and kind of reevaluating, like, how are these relationships going? How, you know, am I running from my home life and my daily life or am I really nurturing the things that need to be nurtured here? And to see that as being a noble and noble and beautiful um, pro endeavor in life, you know, and that, that, uh, you know, I think we had this, we kind of got away from that notion for a while that home was something that was just like a, a, a filling station, or I think Wendell Berry says that, um, but yeah. our real lives are out there in the world, you know, and, and I think that that we've inverted the truth, which is, you know, our, our, pri our, our life in the home, what happens in the home is really the real stuff of life, um, you know, far more than our career or far more than, you know, the utilitarian workings of the day and the stores and all whatever we're doing. Um, that these are the things, this is the place, the project that we give the most, our, our, most of our attention to in the day. Um, and, you, you know, of course, it, subservient to our relationship with God. But, um, but yeah, so that was the, the idea. It's just to rediscover the beauty of home. Because I think um, the fact that most, a lot of women these days work outside the home, it has lost its sacred, maybe, its, its heart. <laughs> and, and I think this book, really shows you that home is the heart it is the place that we long for and and our ultimate home is heaven so i just i love it so thank you so much i will um put this in the show notes along with your other book and the second one and what's the second one about the second one is so the first one is a bit more about the home the second one is more about the work of the homemaker the actual person caring for the home so it's more we uh we cover we profile women of all different ages and stages and um, and, and also have the similar structure as far as the chapters and the inserts go. Um, but we really want to show that there is, um, you know, a beauty in sort of the call to be a really fruitful woman and not necessarily speaking merely biologically, but, you know, we cover um, women who are in the religious life or women who are single women or, you know, that there, but, but that this idea that there's this capacity of womanhood that's really beautiful to take something in and to give something back and, and through this act of service and being, you know, um, really understanding that we have a capacity to relate to people in a certain way that can be very fruitful and, and loving. Um, and, I, and I think is unsung in so, in so many ways. You know, we talk about tenderness, like why, what is beautiful about tenderness? It's actually was a word I hadn't spent much time thinking about, but when I really started contemplating it, it it's really quite beautiful, this ability to sort of sense a pain that has to be interacted with in order to understand it, you know, and and how deeply personal that is. Um, anyway, so it was really about just, the, but then we have a lot of just beautiful pictures. Our photographer, Kim Bale, she's just marvelous. And she did a great job with just really showing sort of all, all sorts of different um, ways that this can be such a beautiful life. And it's not about, you know, luxury. It's just about 
you know, simple, the simple things of order and, and care. And, you know, when you walk into a home that's really, really cared for, you know, that there's a lot of love there, no matter how humble it is. You know, I've seen that yeah. multiple times. And so, yeah, so just to trying to, to show that with both words and images was, was really important to us. It's beautiful. Well, you, you succeeded. Um, that word tenderness, I, our Lord gave me that word this morning at Mass. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, because I asked him, I've, I have four daughters, and do you have more daughters or boys? I have four daughters, two, two boys. Ah, ah there you oh, go. Funny. And I have one who's on the cusp of teenagehood, and, you know, just to, and all the emotions and hormones that go with that, and, um, and the frustrations, I suppose. And I just said, give me, give me your eyes and your hands just to be, to be you. And he said, tenderness. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, okay, I will be more tender. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Beautiful. That's really so thank beautiful. you for, for <laughs> encouraging me to be more tender with my teenager. No, <laughs> me with that story. I love that. I need to be more tender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hard. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and telling us, uh, explaining to me and I'm sure to many uh, what the woke culture is um, and how we as an individual can counteract that um, and give us hope because I know a lot of people get quite um, overwhelmed with where the world's heading or just, you know, I mean, even the other day I was reading in the newspaper that the Australian Breastfeeding Association have now brought out a um a guide to chest feeding to um you know as a resource for transgender parents and it's just it's it's so uh, laughable you know not not for them i suppose they find it very uh <laughs> uh supportive and inclusive but when you think about it um chest feeding from breastfeeding just seems absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and that's what makes it feel so so cult-like, I think, is that, you know, if you separate yourself from the the, the ideology that's all the ambient messaging all around us, and you really, re you, it, it's pretty obvious how absurd it is. And you think anyone can see that this is absurd. But it's, it, it's that's what, that's what makes it seem very culty to me, is that, you know, that, it's like we've swallowed this pill where we no longer even trust our own understanding of reality anymore because it's we have to subject everything to the power of the ideology you know it's yeah it's that it's alarming but it also seems like well you know if if anything's going to wake people up maybe you know it can be this how extreme this is and how how quickly it's escalating yeah you know? yeah the speed of it is yeah. is quite insane yeah so thank you thank you um before we finish, you need to tell my listeners something that brought you joy this week. Ah. So think of anything that brought you joy? I can, actually. I had this. I, it actually made me feel old for a bit, but, then, but it just filled me with so much joy that I don't even care about being old. But I had all six of my children under one roof this weekend, which ah. now that, you know, I have one off at college and another one who's working all the, a ton and... It seems like we're all oftentimes in different directions, but she was home for about 24 hours and we woke up, we all, and I said, let's take the kids out to lunch after mass today. We're, they're all, t they're all under one roof. Let's do something as a family. And it was 
one of the first times that I remember I've, I've really had that feeling, but I've heard other, you know, parents that have at the sta- reached the stage before me talk about what a joy that is. And so we went out for lunch and it just was really brought me joy to have everyone all together. How beautiful. Well, my, my 18 year old is moving out next week. So that brought me a tear. <laughs> so I've, I've had them all under one roof and okay. now they're about to. So okay. my 21 year old still lives at home. But what br- brought me joy was the crimson moon last night. So you uh, probably didn't I heard see about it. it. I did not see it. No, it was so beautiful. So I, I lay outside with my 18 year old and a, and a 16 year old, me squashed in the middle. And we just lay there and looked up at the moon. And that uh, we've never done that before. So oh, that's sweet. It, it brought me real joy. Yeah. It's very simple. Um, so thanks, Noel. It's it was great probably dinner time for you now, so I better let you go. <laughs> so thank you it so much, and I'll leave. Thank you. Your book's in the show notes. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Great.